Is Christianity on a collision course with artificial intelligence? Why is Planned Parenthood making some truly bizarre claims about virginity? And what is going on with Governor Sarah Sanders battling with a church-state group? We'll have these stories and more on Higher Ground with Billy Hollowell. I'm Billy Hollowell, and here on Higher Ground, I get a chance to bring you light amid the chaos of our world, covering in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. And we are going to dive right in on this Planned Parenthood story. I also have this as an op-ed, an opinion piece for those who don't know that term, over at the Washington Times. You can head over to Higher Ground on the Washington Times to read my commentary on this, but I need to dig into this because it is incredibly bizarre. And look, it's also troubling what Planned Parenthood is trying to do here. This idea that virginity is a bad thing. It's something that has really infected society. And I wanna read to you a, this is a quote, because it's actually a tweet from Planned Parenthood on their Twitter account recently. They said, quote, the idea of virginity comes from outdated, let's be real, patriarchal ways of thinking that hurts everyone. This tweet, <laughs> I mean, the, the absurdity of the statement, okay, the absurdity of the statement and by the way, they also had with this tweet a billboard, an image of a billboard, and the billboard said, virginity is a social construct. The absurdity of the entire message almost takes your breath away because it's bombastic clinging to untruth is so over the top. And there's also no self-awareness in this message because under Planned Parenthood's operational model, and I understand some of you are Planned Parenthood fans, for whatever reason, but under, and you have to be fair here, under their operational model, virginity is presumably a threat to their existence, right? Because sex is the very vehicle that they are enabled to survive and thrive. And so it's never a surprise when I see Planned Parenthood discouraging self-restraint, because if you were encouraging self-restraint, it would literally be a threat to the services that they provide, right? Because the services they provide are predicated upon not having self-restraint. Anyway, this this statement, without a doubt, is one of the most bizarre. I mean, I don't even, I, I can't think of another recent statement from them that I've observed, at least recently, where I've thought, okay, it's, it's this ridiculous because it's such a lie. It's based on an untruth. First and foremost, calling virginity, which by the way is, an incredibly respectable decision to abstain from sex, one that has been made very difficult by the current culture that we're in, uh, and we'll get into that in a moment, but calling it outdated is little more than a feeble platitude because society's obsession with sex, it has done no favors to anyone. And, and I think, I mean, I don't think, I know, if you look at the numbers and the statistics on this, you've got porn addiction, you've got shattered perception, that all of this is plaguing hearts, minds, and institutions, and it's perpetuated through the media, right, and through Hollywood. And just because self-respect and restraint are no longer in vogue, they're no longer popular, it doesn't make them any less moral. This idea that, oh, that's just an old idea, it's a bad idea because it's old, is so silly to me when every metric shows how bad our obsession with sex has been for us as a culture. Now, if today's culture has shown us anything, it is that an obsession with sex and pleasure and the self creates destructive patterns. Destructive patterns 
of behavior, destructive patterns in our lives, and mass bewilderment. I mean, look around at the world around us, and here we have an organization attacking virginity, discouraging it, acting as though it's some social contagion, some some evil thing to be very wary of, and yet we're looking at every measurable statistic showing us that this is a lie. Now, let's just get into a little bit of, you know, th- this whole idea that this is old school, right? That virginity is something that, you know, we shouldn't pay attention to anymore because it comes basically from religion. They're not saying that, but let's just let's just put it out there. Virginity is and self-control, they're both biblical value, sure. The apostle Paul wrote about this in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 5. He wrote It's God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honorable, not in passionate lusts like the pagans who do not know God. So yeah, the Bible talks about this. We should have self-control and self-restraint. This might seem outdated, I'll put that in quotes, to a culture selling the lie that any and all feelings and whims are worth pursuing and chasing, but let's, let's do this. Let's remove the Bible for a minute and let's take faith out of the equation and let's focus on the facts. Waiting to have sex is better for everyone from a physical, a mental, and a relational perspective. That is undeniable. We could sit here all day and have a debate about it, but every measurable statistic shows us this. Planned Parenthood believes the idea of virginity comes from outdated ways of thinking and asserts that it hurts everyone, yet study after study shows that they are wrong. Before we even go there, though, do we actually need, and I I have to ask this question because it's shock, and I know there's going to be people who push back on this and act as though I'm a crazy person for saying this, do we really need a study to understand how having fewer partners puts a person at less risk of pregnancy, STDs, emotional pitfalls, all all of that that come from casual encounters? I mean, do we, are we really at a point where we have such little logic that we need studies to tell us the obvious. I don't want anybody to answer that because my fear is that we are at that point, at least in some sectors in this country. So not only though is that common sense, right? But anyone arguing the opposite, I would argue, is either ignorant, lying, or attempting to prop up a sex-fixated business model. And as for the latter, consider the fact that Planned Parenthood proudly calls itself, quote, the leading provider of high-quality, affordable health care, and the nation's largest provider of sex education. Again, this is the business model. But let's go back to the claim that virginity and the ideas on which it is predicated somehow hurt everyone. Okay, let's look at that. A 2016 Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study found the exact opposite, that virgin teenagers fare much better than their sexually active peers. And I'm going to read you part of what the study read. The study read in part, quote, this report demonstrates that students who had no sexual contact have a much lower prevalence of most health risk behaviors compared with students who had sexual contact with only the opposite sex and students who had sexual contact with only the same sex or with both sexes. And the data points don't end there. There was a 2012 Cornell University study that found sex early on in a relationship can lead to decreased satisfaction later on. Other research, shocker, has come to the same conclusion. Waiting longer yields positive emotional benefits. And, shocker, long-lasting happiness. There was a 2010 study from Brigham Young University that showed benefits enjoyed by couples who waited until marriage compared to those 
who started having sex in the early part of the relationship. Now, I won't waste your time with more of this data. I can continue to ramble through all of the studies on this, but the consensus is clear. Now, sadly, there are too many people, and I, and I know that some people who are watching or listening to this are going to fall into this category, who are blinded by this over-sexualization. It is prevalent in entertainment. It is prevalent in the media. And it's really fed by our human desire to serve ourselves, right? We are exchanging the truth for a lie. And it's a lie that feels good, right? So it's a lie that's easy to sell. Now, I also have to address Planned Parenthood's patriarchal claim because this part made me laugh when I read the tweet. Not only is it inaccurate, but it's also bizarre. I mean, how is encouraging men and women to wait to have sex the result of some sort of male-dominated force? Uh, you go back and you look at the Bible, you look at Scripture, and again, this is presumably the old-school perspective that Planned Parenthood and others don't like. It makes it pretty clear that self-restraint is for everyone. It's not merely for women. It's not being used to hold women back. It's for everyone, men and women. And furthermore, the results of waiting benefit everyone. Again, men and women alike. So here's here's the spoiler alert on this. Planned Parenthood's tweet is utter nonsense. Virginity isn't a social construct. It's a common sense approach to finding true love, fulfillment, and wellness in every way. Again, emotionally, physically, mentally, spiritually. Go down the line. The studies back me up on this. So I guess my final question is, what are you going to do? Are you going to follow the science, right? We've been told to follow the science. Or are we going to bend to the diabolical whims of an organization whose existence appears purportedly to be dependent on people believing the lie that virginity is somehow a social ill perpetuated by the patriarchy? All right, that brings us to the end of my rant on Planned Parenthood and virginity. And we're going to move into our higher ground headline section of the show, which honestly, this is one of my favorite parts of the podcast because we get a chance to sit down with a reporter from the Times to talk about different issues, whatever the big news over the past few days has been, interesting stories. And so today we are welcoming Mark Kellner to the show to break down three important stories that he has covered over the past week here on the Times. So Mark Kellner, as always, thanks for coming on the show here. We have a couple of stories here that are captivating for a variety of reasons. The first one though, it's one that caught my eye, and you did such a great job writing this up about Arkansas Governor Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And really, I mean, who would have thought we'd be talking about chalk um, on this show? But here we are talking about chalk drawings at the entrance of the governor's mansion in Arkansas. And I'll let you tell us the story, but she's in a little bit of a back and forth with a D.C. church state group. Tell us about what is going on here. Well, um, thanks, and thanks for having me. We can indeed chalk this up to uh, a group called Americans United for Separation of Church and State. And uh, at one point, you know, they were very limited to things that uh, I, I suppose actually matter, but they're concerned because Governor Huckabee's kids did this picture of a uh, cross uh, in chalk in front of the governor's mansion, and it was set off by these uh, colored triangles that sort of represent stained glass. Um, you know, in other words, the, the drawing looks like a stained glass window with a cross in it. 
It's uh, pretty. It's actually really a, a beautiful drawing if you look at a picture of it. I, I couldn't be that artistic, but that's another discussion. Uh, <laughs> Governor Sanders posted a picture of this on social media, and Americans United sent a four-page letter saying, uh, thou shalt not have uh, religious artwork on the public space of the governor's mansion. And uh, Governor Sanders, who doesn't shy away from these things, uh, wrote back and said, I've got your letter, and my answer is no. And uh, she went on to describe how uh, in Arkansas they don't worry about bullying letters from Washington, and it was a uh, rather stunning defense of her position. Uh, she reminds me of General uh, McAuliffe from uh, the Battle of the Bulge in World War II, who got that note from the German commander saying, listen, uh, you guys are done, surrender. And McAuliffe wrote back to the German commander, nuts. <laughs> so, and by I mean, the way, uh, the Allies went on to win the Battle of the Bulge, win the war, and uh, it was the uh, Nazi army that ended up surrendering. I, like, okay, so... In this particular case, their argument essentially is that people, this is unconstitutional, and that people would feel uncomfortable if they're not Christians because there's a chalk, chalk cross out in front of one of the entrances of the mansion. I mean, help me track with this and understand it from there. Let's put our you know church-state hat on from the more right. secular side. How how are they making sense of taking the time to write a four-page letter to her on this? Well, you, you'd have to ask them. Uh, again, they say that the mere presence of the drawing is um, some sort of violation, but this wasn't done by employees of the state of Arkansas. This wasn't done... Uh, Governor Sanders didn't uh, hire a contractor to put this there. It's her kids. She has three kids. They got a box of chalk and they did this. Um, I, I don't know if uh, the constitution really has anything to say about uh, children drawing in chalk on a sidewalk. Well, okay. And there's a couple of other things here too, because you raised some interesting points there. She obviously was very much not going to back down on this, but she made a point in her own response, in her own letter, about the fact that everybody is welcome, regardless of their religion, their faith, their beliefs, and that she represents everyone. And she made that clear, this idea that the cross meant that she was somehow, she even used the word bigot, you know, just because I'm a Christian, I'm a bigot. That's the implication here that she was offended by. But I thought that was really interesting that she went out of her way to make it known that everybody was welcome there. Well, yes, and, uh, you know, it's it's kind of cool these days to be outraged about everything and and we have trigger warnings and so forth but you know uh, a little common sense i think needs to prevail uh if if people are offended by the sight of christian crosses in public then you don't want to live in the united states because there are crosses all over the place uh you know, it's, I can understand uh, people making a statement, but it has to be tempered, I believe, 
with with some tolerance and some sense of reality. Yeah, no, and, and I think you know these <laughs> these debates are going to get even more intense after the recent Supreme Court cases were decided, right? Because now you have a lot of there's even more attention being paid to these perceived violations of the First Amendment and the debates that surround them. And so that was a that was a great story. I always I do always love watching somebody be defiant, you know, with, and not just for the sake of being defiant, but because they really believe wholeheartedly in what they're defending. And so she's always an interesting person to watch in this case in particular. But you have another story that I want to tackle, and it has to do with incarcerated men and women being yes. given access to Bibles and study materials. I found this this story particularly interesting because we talk about a lot of the negatives of technology. And yet in this case, you have prison chaplains using technology in a really innovative way. Tell us about this story. The interesting thing regarding prison fellowship and regarding technology is that prison fellowship has set up this web portal, uh, a web page, a website, if you will, called the storehouse. And if you're a prison chaplain, you have to be officially accredited. You have to have a Department of Corrections email address. Uh, if you're a prison chaplain who meets those requirements, you can sign up and they'll send you uh, Bibles, uh, study materials, DVDs uh, to share with the uh, people who are incarcerated. And the hope is that these items will help people discover a better way of living than whatever the path was that got them to prison in the first place. Yeah, that and that is so that is so needed. I think a lot of people in prison they're they're written off, right? They're they're sort of thrown out, they're tossed out because they've made in many cases obviously bad decisions and yet you have this ministry and prison fellowship is always innovating, doing different things um, to try to reach them. Um what are what is prison fellowship saying just about the patterns of what they see? Because again, there are people who are a little dismissive when it comes to this topic, but I would imagine that their leader, James Ackerman, and others there are seeing a lot of fruit to their work. They are seeing a lot of fruit. Um, they are aware that roughly of the 2 million people in this country who are incarcerated every year, uh, I shouldn't say they're incarcerated every year, of the 2 million people who are in prison, uh, between 500 and 600,000 of those folks return to society. Now you get an equal number coming in, unfortunately, because of crime. But you've got between 500 and 600,000 people a year going back, going back into society. And the question Mr. Ackerman uh, posed is, what do you, how do you want those people to return? Do you want them to return as hardened criminals? Or do you want them to return as people whose lives have been touched and transformed? by the power of Christ to help them. And, you know, I think most folks uh, would say we want to see people transformed. And that's what uh, these Bibles, they have a special uh, Bible called the Life Recovery Bible, which incorporates uh, the tenets of the 12-step uh, programs alongside scripture uh, that these inmates can use to do Bible studies. They can read, they can share with others. And hopefully it has a good influence on these individuals to seek a relationship with God and to seek a transformation in their lives. Yeah, no, I mean, and when you look at the scope, just for context, and you wrote this in your story, but they have given out 261,000 Bibles and ministry books last year alone. So th That's this right. is a 
I mean, this is a massive undertaking. And again, it's prison fellowship. And we've got a minute or two here. I want to cover one more story with you because you did a great write-up on the Museum of the Bible. And those who have not visited the Museum of the Bible yet, it is an incredible site to see. It really is. It's in Washington, D.C. Uh, but tell us a little bit about this story because you kind of dove into some of the exhibits and key attractions. Well, thanks. And you're absolutely right. Uh, this is a must-see attraction, in my opinion, in Washington, D.C. And... Uh, the best piece of advice I can give is set aside more than one day because you can't do it all in a single day. The principal thing that I found interesting were the in-person demonstrations. You have uh, a gentleman, a rabbi, by the name of Moshe Englander, who's there. He is what they call a sofer, S-O-F-E-R, or a Torah scribe. And he copies... Uh, the the uh, Torah scroll, which are the uh, Hebrew uh, books, uh, first five books of the Bible, the five books of Moses. And he does that professionally. And he does it at the museum as a demonstration of how these scrolls are created. And, you know, most of us have never seen that in person. And he uh, brings it home uh, by doing people's names in Hebrew on a little bookmark they can take away. And it really made an impression on the folks who were there. Yeah, well, I mean, this is, being able to have the Bible be sort of brought alive in this way is really unique. And they have so many other exhibits. I feel like you need two or three days to actually get through the museum. Oh, it's without huge. question, without <clears throat> question. Well. Um, you know, the uh, exhibit they have on science and scripture, uh, you could spend an entire day in that just alone, and it's drawn a, a tremendous crowd, and it's also drawn a very positive reaction, showing the ways uh, that scripture and science support each other. A lot of people believe uh, that, you know, uh, the Bible is somehow opposed to science. That isn't the case at all. No, not at all. And I think, you know, most people who pay attention recognize that science backs the Bible. As time goes on, we see more and more of that. Uh, but listen, I appreciate you diving in on these stories. We'll make sure they're in the show notes so people can go and read each of them. Thanks so much for your time today. Well, thank you very much for having me. Always a pleasure. Lots of interesting stories there. And we're moving into our last segment of the show now. This is our interview with Dr. James Spencer. If you're not familiar with Dr. Spencer, he is the head of the D.L. Moody Institute, and he's always weighing in on really important cultural movements, the things that are happening in the headlines and in our world and how they impact people of faith. In particular, he's coming on the show today to talk about artificial intelligence. What is the future of AI? And in the context of Christianity, how should believers people who believe in the Bible and look at the Bible and look to scripture for their everyday lives, how should they be responding to AI? So with no further ado, here is Dr. James Spencer. Dr. James Spencer, welcome to Washington Times Higher Ground. Now you have a new ebook out. It's called 20 Questions, Christian Resistance, Technology, and Artificial Intelligence. I want to start with a general question how do you define artificial intelligence? Because people are hearing this term right now. It's everywhere. What exactly is it? Well, it, it's almost defined by the phrase itself. So it is a, an 
artificial recreation of a portion of human intelligence. And I use portion there really intentionally. Um, our brains do things that computers just simply can't do, um, at least not right now. And, and so artificial intelligence, really what it's doing is it is a, a computational strategy that uses um, statistics and probability, basically algorithms, to predict what's happening um, within language, within images, within audio and video, and, uh, and allows a computer to do some fairly robust computation um, that mimics and mirrors human thought. And so as we, as we think about artificial intelligence, that's basically what we're looking at is a mimicking of human thought that is fairly quick, fairly accurate, you know, all of those kind of things. Um, but that's what it is. Some mimicking of human thought. You know, it's, it's so, it's so interesting because you say that, you know, mimicking of human thought and a lot of technology, I think there are people in the world today still who want to avoid it, right? It's such a part of our lives, but yet a lot of people will look at it and say, oh, I don't need to worry about that. I don't need to think about that. But when it comes to AI, artificial intelligence, it is suddenly everywhere. And it feels very much like this is something you won't be able to avoid. If you're one of those people who wants to push it to the side, you're not going to be able to. Um, feel free to respond to that, but but why should we be paying attention in light of that? I, I think there's a couple of reasons we should be paying attention, and I agree with you. I don't think it's something we're going to be able to avoid. It's being built into too many of the technologies that we're already using, um, whether that's social media platforms, you know, TikTok and Snapchat have now built-in AIs that are going to be difficult to avoid. It's on YouTube. Um, the recommendations that pull up are a rudimentary form of artificial intelligence. Um, so almost anything we touch technologically from Word documents to, you know, social media platforms are going to have artificial intelligence built in. And so we just need to understand what it's doing and how it works. Um, I, I do think that we should be concerned um, with artificial intelligence out there simply because of the perception that artificial intelligence is being given in the public. People tend to view it as almost like a, an all-powerful genie where we're going to rub this magic lamp and it's going to give us the answers that we've always been wanting. And that perception gives it an air of trustworthiness that I don't know that it really deserves. Um, if you think about AI being the smartest person in the room, right? And I use that, that phrase person fairly lightly. <laughs> but if you think about it being the smartest person in the room, that doesn't mean it's always going to be right. It just means that it's able to process and, and quote unquote think in ways that are faster and maybe a little bit more complex than an individual would be able to do within a given time frame. But if we continue to lean in on AI and trust the answers that it gives us, I think that's the real danger. We've got to learn to be literate as we interact with these AI systems and understand how to poke and prod the answers that are generated from the AI systems to make sure that we're actually getting a full and complete answer from them as opposed to just accepting what they give us and going, I guess that's what it is. Well, and I, I want to ask you in light of that, because I think a lot of people are watching this, particularly Christians right now, and the big worry, and maybe even some conservatives on the political side, the big worry is, well, who's programming this, right? You have this thing that is thinking, right? And I love, I love the way you worded that. You're kind of putting it in quotes, this thinking person um, that really has human beings behind it. And so... You know, can you speak to that a little bit? How much concern should we have over where the information is actually coming from and how it's being programmed? So I think there are a couple of worries on the programming side. 
um, when I, so when I wrote this guide, I actually went in and used chat GPT and I asked it a lot of questions and sort of went back and forth, almost like an interview with chat GPT. And one of the things that I found was that it kept defaulting back to, um, a neutral and objective stance. It would keep saying that neutral and objective. I, I try to give my answers in a neutral and objective way. And what that should raise for us is that nothing is neutral and objective. <laughs> um, and so everything has some sort of bias. When I would ask it questions about faith or, um, you know, Christianity specifically, I mean, it would almost always come back and say, well, I'm programmed not to have an opinion on that. I'm supposed to give neutral objective answers. That perspective on the world is something that we really want to correct. It's something that needs to be reformed. And the fact that it's being programmed back into artificial intelligence probably isn't the best thing for people of faith. And so I think those are the kind of things we should really watch out for. As these things are being programmed, they are being programmed as a general rule, assuming that faith is just an opinion. And, and I think that's problematic. Uh, the other side of this, though, what I would say is part of it is inputs. Let's say the programming that AI uses and how it's sort of framed so that it, when it gets information, it, it sort of sifts and sorts that information. The other problem is the information that's actually going into it. And so if we look at how the information is fed into something like a chat GPT or, or other AI platforms, much of it is coming from the internet. And so can we really trust the information that is coming off of the internet? Now, when we're searching that on a search engine and we're pulling up articles and reading through things, we can really take the time if we want to, to, to determine for ourselves whether or not we want to believe this or that opinion on the internet. When AI is doing it and it's using these probabilistic sort of methodologies and it's just sort of coming to conclusions and determining what article is relevant, what article is right, we're losing the ability to discern now what that information actually should be or could be. And we're accepting an answer from an AI that has taken that part of our mental work away from us. So those are some dangers that I see with it. Yeah, and I, and I want to talk about the other side, the, the positives of it, but I do want to also mention that you know, this seems, and feel free to push back if you disagree, but it seems to be coming at a time when people are struggling to think in general. You know, people, they, they've seemed to have exhausted their ability to reason in many ways, and now you have this system coming in that is going to think for you, right? It's going to input and give you information, and there's an element of that that has me concerned in that, oh gosh, is this really what we need? Something else to incentivize us to think less. I don't know if you want to reflect on that at all. No, I definitely agree with you. I mean, I think we've gone through this period where, um, you know, it used to be that it was not easy to get information. Let's go back to a time when we just had broadcast TV, like a time when I was growing up and we had six channels and I was the remote control. I had to walk up and turn the television. <laughs> you know, uh, the news was only on at five or six, right? If you weren't home at five or six, you weren't in front of a television, you missed it. Um, and, and so it was, in, in some ways, it took more effort to get information. You might actually have to unfold a paper newspaper and read it. And then we moved into this era where information was just sort of a commodity that was easily at our fingertips. We can get it whenever we want, however we want, in multiple formats. And that has good and bad. You know, there are good trade-offs for that, bad trade-offs for that. Um, but the reality is that I don't know that we ever really learned to process the amount of information that's coming at us in a way that was conducive to human thought, 
right? Um, and so I think as we just sort of picked and chose what information we were interested in, um, we really did lose the ability to do what I would call um, determining what is actually relevant for our day-to-day -day lives. Just because something's interesting doesn't mean it's particularly relevant. And uh, one, of the, one of the books I've read in the past, um, Beyond News, the, the author talks about um, man bites dog stories are always more interested than dog bites man stories. And, and I think a lot of times we gravitated toward those man bites dog stories because they're interesting. They may not be particularly relevant. And so we have to get back to something that's more there. And that, that to me is one of the big dangers of AI because AI is going to give us, I think, it's going to choose what's relevant for us. And because we haven't gotten, because we sort of lost the ability to choose relevance anyway, we're in a real deficit here as, as AI starts to move in. Yeah, and I think, you know, there are lots of other spiritual issues that people might get into speculating about all sorts of different things on theology and eschatology. We won't go there today, uh, but I do think it's incredibly interesting. On the other side, you know, to be fair in this, you know, there's a lot of calls, obviously, to, to pause the development of AI right now until we can kind of have some ground rules. But I think the cat's out of the bag on a lot of that. You've, you've got countries around the world that are not going to abide by any of those rules, even if you set them. Uh, but having said that, the positives, you know, how can Christians and how should Christians be looking at this and people of faith looking at this issue in terms of, hey, maybe there's some area, areas in life where this will actually help? Yeah, I think um, what I would recommend for Christians to really benefit from artificial intelligence, I think of it in terms of learning to be literate again, right? Literacy normally means the ability to read, write, speak, those kind of things. With AI, we're going to have to learn to be literate again. And that means learning to ask questions, learning to prompt the AI system to give us what we're asking for, making sure that we clarify with the AI system what it is that we're looking for, why it is that it's giving us the information. That's a literacy skill set. And I think AI can be a really powerful tool in the same way that Google search engines help us sift and sort through, you know, the loads of information that we've got. I use Google search engines all the time in my research. It's very beneficial. And it's far more um, efficient than it used to be when I'd have to sit in the you know, basement of a library sifting through catalogs. And I see AI in the same way. But you know, as an analogy, you have to learn how to search Google. And I think we'll have to learn how to like, converse, let's say, with artificial intelligence. And if we don't learn that skill set, I think AI will ultimately lead more to, to more negative consequences than it does positive. And so it's really up to us. I, I really think that the responsibility is still on us. We have to learn to relate to this new digital environment and this new digital tool that is being put out there. There's obviously things that we need to be a little bit concerned about, but I'm not one that says, I, I don't actually think pausing the development is a good move. Um, I think maybe pausing the release of certain things is a good move. Um, I think there, you know, there should be some regulatory uh, aspects around what launches and what doesn't. But the development of artificial intelligence from a research perspective to me seems beneficial. And so, um, yeah, overall, I would just encourage Christians, let's learn how to use it. Let's learn to be literate with it. And let's not just play around with it as if it's a toy. It's a pretty powerful tool. 
And so we don't want to be, um, as, as I've been saying, we don't want to be, you know, giving a hammer to a two-year-old, right? That's <laughs> never going to turn out well, right? And so let's not be the two-year-olds that are, you know, picking up a hammer and trying to play with it. Let's yeah. actually be mature adults who understand what tool we're picking up and learn to use it responsibly. You know, one of the stranger portions of, of the conversation around AI centers on consciousness, whether or not AI is going to become, quote unquote, conscious, whether or not there are going to be robots that have AI in them and they're walking and they're moving and they're interacting and they're talking and they're doing the things that humans do, but they're obviously not humans. Um, so from a biblical perspective, can you address that a little bit? Because that does seem to be the part of this. I mean, you think back to all those movies, you know, that that have been you know done on these very topics where they would show all these crazy sci-fi things. It feels like we're actually inching closer to some of those things possibly becoming true to some degree. I would say, uh, number one, I, I probably will never, I, I find it difficult that I'll ever think that AI actually has a conscience. I think artificial intelligence is a mimicry of human thought. And so when I think about it, I don't think it's going to develop a conscious. I think that is something that God has uniquely created in created beings. So I wouldn't put it past, you know, animals have a consciousness, for instance. But they're a, they're a divinely created being, right? Yep. AI is a reconstruction that mimics human thought. And so I think that we could get to a point where it does mimic something like a conscience, but I don't think it's going, or a consciousness, but I don't think that it is going to have a consciousness. The other side of this that I would just throw in here from a biblical perspective is, I think there's a lot of concern that AI could replace humanity. And there are even some uh, trends within the transhumanist movement where there's a drive to have AI replace humanity. Um, what I would just say to that is that AI will never replace humanity. It, humanity has a unique uh, covenantal relationship with God that God himself has established. He has not established that with machines. He has not established that with, you know, robots that have some sort of mimicked consciousness. He's established that with human beings. We're the ones who are made in the image of God, and we are the ones who are always going to be reflecting his glory. Whether or not we are in a, an environment where we have, you know, superior intelligence uh, embedded within robots doesn't matter. What matters is that we are the only ones who are ever going to reflect the glory of God. We're the only ones who are really going to participate in with God in what he's doing in redeeming the world. No, absolutely. And I think I think people need to keep that in mind, you know, in the midst of panic and worry about this and the conversations that are going on. The book, the ebook that you put out, it's called 20 Questions, Christian Resistance, Technology and Artificial Intelligence. People can grab it over on the DL Moody Center's website. But before we go, tell us a little bit more about what you do at the DL Moody Center, the work you're doing, and what you're hoping people take away from it. Yeah, so the D.L. Moody Center is a ministry out in Northfield, Massachusetts. Um, we actually preserve and um, improve the property where D.L. Moody was born, where he lived when he moved uh, back to Northfield after the Chicago fire, and where he did a lot of his ministry there in Northfield. There's actually a 2,300-seat auditorium he built to hold summer conferences in the small town in western Massachusetts. And so um, we preserve that property, but I think really our ministry is to echo the work and life of D.L. Moody in modern day. And D.L. Moody was all about getting God's people together to pray, to read the scriptures, and to worship together 
and then allow the Holy Spirit to take them where he wanted them to go. And so uh, our our goal has always been to sort of put, put God's people back into a place where they're focusing on God's word, on prayer, on worship, on coming together as a unified body of Christ and allowing the Holy Spirit to work. Well, that is amazing work indeed. Appreciate you taking the time today and looking forward to having you on again very soon. That brings us to the end of today's Higher Ground with Billy Hollowell. Head on over to the Washington Times and check out Higher Ground. On the landing page, you'll find articles, podcasts, daily news, and so much more. And we hope you'll tune into this show next week. And also stay tuned for video content and plenty more again over on Washington Times Higher Ground. Higher Ground.